Welcome to episode 68 of the Contra Fabulous podcast. I'm Audrey Waters. And I'm Ken Lane. And we have not been able to uh, do the podcast regularly the last month, but today does mark our one-month anniversary in our new town, city. Yeah. Location. Um, look, all of it. Uh, we're actually in separate rooms. We are. We have an apartment. Because we actually have a two-bedroom apartment that we can uh, separate ourselves in. Um, w- with, and you're in the room that has furniture. Yes. <laughs> you are in the room that does not. I'm in the rest of the apartment, which does not have furniture. But we have internet. We have a bed and we have internet. So uh, I'm set. <laughs> and I'm sitting on the wood floor. Because, you know. <laughs> well, it will, we'll get it together soon. We're, uh, I'm going to head back to, or we are going to head back to L.A. and pack up the house. And uh, I'm going to drive the stuff across the country. So we'll be back to normal here soon. Soon enough. And, I mean, I think that the, it, in some ways the month has flown by. Um, but there is something about being, you know, being sort of in between spaces that has made it, that has made not just doing the podcast challenging. I think we talked about that when we did one earlier this month, we talked about the difficult, like that our recording setup had changed, but there's something just about sort of acclimating to a new place and figuring out a new work routine that I, I don't know how you feel, but I have not felt quite like I've got like I'm in the swing of things yet, and part of it is uh, I'm in class too. Like I'm taking classes. And... Yeah, you're in school, so you're you're facing a different stack than I am. I would say similarly. I'm I was out of my sorts for a little while, but I had some traveling. I went down to D.C. and uh, spent some time at Capital One, and um, went to Princeton for a hackathon. So I've been doing things, but actually this weekend I feel like I'm finding my groove, and and I'm not. I don't have any travel, so. Um, I'm hoping uh, it works out. Well, you, I mean, I did, I guess I did a brief bit of traveling. I went up to, up, I'm not very good at my East Coast geography. I went up to Boston. Does that, that's right. Yes. Up to, up over. Um, I took the train. So whatever direction I headed, I went to Boston, uh, to Cambridge. I spoke at um, Justin Reich's class in MIT a week and a half, two weeks ago. See, I don't even know what, I don't even know what day it is. I'm a mess. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, it was over a week ago. Yeah, I guess so. So, but uh, you say that you're up and running, but you, I mean, I want to actually start off, and I think it'll segue into what, um, you know, because we have a couple of weeks of tech news to catch up on, but I want to start with a, an anecdote, your ex- one of your experiences that I think actually does dovetail into um, what we end up discussing, and that was... You, uh, middle of the day yesterday? No, Friday. See? No, it was yesterday. yesterday. It was yesterday. yesterday. Middle of the day yesterday, you um, went to do something on GitHub and you realized that your GitHub, not your personal account, but your organizational account for API Evangelist had been, well, well you, you, you tell the story. Yeah, so I was I was sitting down just getting ready to do some writing. I had um, been having a good writing weekend, and I logged on to, well, it's the API Evangelist org, so it's different than the API Evangelist user, but it's where I have all of my research, 
which is, if you're not familiar how API Evangelist runs, it runs as GitHub repos in each area of my research is a separate repo. I have um, 90 of them that make up my API Evangelist research. And so, and then there's just the, the, the facade, which is API Evangelist, the blog and the homepage, which connects them all. And, and these, uh, and to, to, and you, do you, you use, do you use GitHub pages to run websites from these repos? Yeah. Yeah, so each of the repos is just, um, I store, my research is is the companies, um, people, and the the open source tools for each area of research. So say for API design, I have the companies who offer API design services, people who are interested in the space, uh, the the tools uh, that you can use to, to manage API design. And then I have other things like patents, I have... Uh, just a a wealth of data that make up each area of my research but each site is just a a template the the data is yaml stored within um uh, a specific folder and uh that's all a github repo but it uses github pages which um if you're not familiar runs jekyll which is a static site content management system and it has a specific folder called underscore data where you can put CSV, JSON, or YAML files and use them throughout your website. And so basically each one of these 90 sites are basically the same template that has a, a company listing, a people listing, a tool listing. And then it just grabs the data from basically its database, which are YAML files. And so when you, you're navigating around my site, you probably don't notice it. Right, because you have these all set up as subdomains. Yeah, these are all subdomains. So you go to design.apievangelist, deployment.apievangelist, and the main apievangelist.com is just the, 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 the entryway to all of that. But interestingly enough, I've never actually moved apievangelist.com into the apievangelist org. So my website stayed up because it's in my personal account. But if you clicked on any of the subsections of API Evangelist, you got a 404 page. Oh, you couldn't get and to any of the subdomains. Yeah, of course. Yeah, you couldn't get to any of the subdomains, and I couldn't get to any of the repos in the org. I could see my org listing had a big pink ribbon across the top that said, your site has been flagged and it is no longer viewable to the public. And so... Um, and then, of course, the ever-helpful contact support contact support and so I submitted a form and a quick first one that was like um WTF where's my site why have I been flagged uh, a second one with a little bit more detail um, like hey this is who I am this is my org um, I'm curious why I've been flagged um, this is just API research it's their data projects um, there should be nothing in there that that violates uh, you know terms of service or, or copyright so, or, yeah. Or copyright or anything. I mean, it's just, um, it's all my research and work. So, uh, so I, you know, I, we went for lunch or went and ran some errands. Oh, no, actually, we went and bought me a new laptop. That's what it was. Because my computers have been having issues. I have two laptops and they both have major issues. So we went and got me a new MacBook, came back. And I started looking into it more and um, hadn't heard back from GitHub. So I just uh, went ahead and started going with Plan B. I have a Plan B in place. 
um, I hadn't really exercised it or had it automated, you know. So what I did is I quickly set up a server on Amazon, um, set up a Jekyll server, took all the backups of those uh, 90 plus or 90 or so sites. And then um, I got the Jekyll all set up. I had uploaded all the sites and I was just getting ready to switch over DNS. So this is about five hours later, six hours later. And I get an email back from GitHub saying, oops, sorry, we apologize for any inconvenience, but your site um, got flagged as spam and got taken out of, you know, production. Uh, we apologize. It was it was done erroneously, and uh, you're back up now. <laughs> okay, so there are lots of pieces to this that I think are worth talking about. One is... Uh, you and I talk a lot about the idea of um, people having more control over their digital um, presence, if you will. And part of that is, quote unquote, owning your domain. Of course, we've had this conversation before. You you don't own your domain. You sort of rent rent it from um, uh, from. Um, from the domain management company, right? So you, so you don't actually own it, but then you've got a host, and in this case, you use GitHub as the host for the files for in order for people to be able to see it. So um, there are several points of weakness anytime we talk about putting our stuff online, and one is DNS, and the other one is sort of the, the hosting. Um, and you found yourself, uh, you know, despite owning API, quote-unquote, owning API evangelist, you found yourself potentially in a bind because you were relying on your hosting provider, your hosting service, to um, keep you up and running. Yeah, and we can, you know, I'm, I, I still have a lot of control because in, in theory and practice I have a lot of backups. Um, I, I didn't have as many backups as I had hoped because it was kind of my my secondary research and and I've been so comfortably running on GitHub I I never really you know fully backed them up all the time at least in the last six months I'd kind of changed things up but I was able to get these backups and and so I can move to a host like I said I was moving to Amazon I still have my domain so so I mean this is basically deplatforming as as we've been kind of seeing it happen we saw um, other sites recently that hate speech sites and, and others we won't mention their name uh, get deplatformed and basically where people won't host them but then also people won't uh, let them register their their domain or their DNS um, um, and 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 handle the addressing for it so so I, I was in a pretty good place and I you know even though I may quote unquote own my domain and I own all the content. I have I have the right to move it around where I want. Um, my hosting providers can pull that out from under me at any point, and that's just why you have good quality backups and, and redundancy. Um, make sure you're storing things in 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 at least two other locations, and and so you can quickly find a new host, set up there, and then change the address for your your domain. If you lose access to your domain, which has happened, you know, the we've seen the federal government do it to, to various people at different times. 
Um, if you lose access to your domain, it's a different it's a different game. Meaning you have to set up a whole new website, and and it's 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 much harder to recover from. But also, I keep you know this is one of the reasons we run using Jekyll is Jekyll is not a it's it's an open source static content management system that is pretty much just HTML, JavaScript, and YAML and CSS. And so it can run anywhere, pretty much. Um, it's a pretty low bar for, for which kind of hosts you can operate on. And I do that intentionally so I can potentially run my own server. I can run it on other hosts. And if, you know, because I, I don't, even though I, I really, really trust GitHub a lot at this moment, I don't trust anybody and, and, and I want to prepare for the worst. Well, let's talk a little bit about the... Um about the, the, some of the other things that happened. So you received no notification from GitHub. There was no email that said, hey, something's weird. Your account's been flagged. You just, I mean, you were just working on a Saturday and stumbled upon it. So, I mean, they, they did not message you. You had to reach out to them. And I think that that's important. So, and although the email eventually said you were caught up in our spam filtering process. You, we don't exactly know what that means. And so in, for some, in some way, something was triggered, and I'm going to guess by an automated process that, um, and, we can, and I want to talk about what that automated process might have been, but that there was something, some automated thing kicked in and you got sent to the penalty box. But you didn't get sent to the penalty box and then get a notice that said, hey, something's weird, contact us. They just put you there with no follow-up and no outreach to you, which to me was, was a kind of a business-level failure. But then also knowing, I mean, you know, we've, we have talked about this before when we were talking about deplatforming the, and the sort of quote, people being concerned about quote-unquote free speech online is that flagging content, flagging it as spam, flagging it as hate speech, flagging it as um, offensive is a pretty common technique that people use to target um, speech they don't agree with. And often what happens is that this, because almost all of these technology companies use an automated system to be able to turn things on and off at that kind of level. Um, there's not often a human that says, okay, the API evangelist is not spam, right? Uh, Tressie McMillan, fa- Tressie McMillan Cottom's um, Facebook page is not um, hate speech. And, but yet they, because of the way in which these processes are automated, oftentimes people find themselves having their access to um, online to really to 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 quote unquote a free speech platform quote unquote free speech right the web the internet is is being shut down because of these automated processes in place well and, and to be fair in this case I have to say github responded pretty quickly even though they, it was a complete business fail I did not get an email saying hey you've been taken down there is no observability or transparency into you know why this happened to me and what was happening i have to say the the one element that did work is they have a, a support system so it was a saturday 
and it took about six hours for them to. But that's still pretty. But it also, I mean, I would say it took. So you initially tweeted about this, but you didn't um, at mention GitHub, and then someone else pinged the attention of GitHub's support Twitter account which responded by saying, fill out the form, which you'd already done. Yeah, and then, and then, and then it took six hours. So maybe there was some wait, you know, the, some of the people who, who kind of replied and, and, and retweeted the, the tweet and the mention um, were pretty big at big, big co's, other big co's that probably are, you know, important GitHub clients. I'm not. Um, so it might have had some wait, but really I think it just kind of, happened as it as it normally would happen so the the support element is what kicked in but yeah i you know a six these are hour all the outage that... though is not cool i mean i know that you and you and i aren't i mean what we're doing is producing you know content online right but like and but that is our business and i mean it it's hard to it's hard to sort of add a dollar figure to what does it mean with six hours of outage on in terms of like the hit that your business takes, it's certainly different than if, say, you were the U.S. federal government and you decided to take the website that people sign up for health insurance for offline. That's a different yeah, kind mean, of thing. But this is still, it is still a pretty substantial hit to the business and could have been much worse depending on the kind of business that you ran or what you, I mean, imagine if you were in the middle of like a, you know, a presentation or if you'd built something for a client I mean, it's it's a problem. Yeah, I mean, I had just pushed a, a portal, an API portal for a, a county in Ohio to run their human services and sent out an email earlier that morning saying, hey, hey, look at this. Luckily, it wasn't it was in a different organization, so it wasn't impacted. But if that had been like, say, my, my user account that had been frozen, I think that would have echoed across all my organizations. I, I don't know for a fact. I, I mean, you don't know how some of these things are going to play out until they play out. So this was actually a pretty interesting training exercise. But I mean, for six hours, I was like done with GitHub. Well, then but, I mean, that was where, and, that's where my mind was set. But then was. also I was done you spent, you know, like you said, you spent a fair amount of that time doing work, like setting up new setting up a new servers, um, installing, is it Ruby on, what is Git Jekyll? Is it Ruby? Yeah, I, basically it's a Linux install with, I install Ru Ruby um, 2.4, and then you install Jekyll, and, and you can get it up and going. Which is but knowledge yeah, that, was, that you have, but not necessarily time that you have on your Saturday to have spent doing this. Yeah, I mean, and at the same time, I'm, like, doing it on a kind of hobbled computer, <laughs> with, setting up a no brand R. new one. Yeah, with no Thankfully R. there's no R in API evangelists. <laughs> How do I set up Ruby? I can't set up Ruby. <laughs> yeah. So it was like, no, luckily, if I hit it really hard, the R worked. So I could I could set up Ruby Gem. Um, but, yeah, it, it. I mean, I, I've run organizations where outages were the cost of outages were measured in thousands of dollars per minute you know um making 50 75 hundred thousand dollars a day in e-commerce sales through through web presence so so i mean i i don't know how to quantify that for our world but yeah it's it's a hit it's, and i think it's a hit and i think that i mean i think that the other piece of it to me the the also the the piece of it that i find really striking and i i want to to turn and talk to some of the stuff that's been happening around Facebook. But to me, it's this notion that GitHub has handed over this particular function 
we'll just call it spam, right? We'll just say spam, the, sp the function of identifying spam. And that is such a loosely, like that is such a large topic. Um, Sarah Jong wrote a really excellent book called The, uh, is it the Internet of Garbage, um, in which she talks a little bit about the history of, history of spam. But, but the, um, the, the, the fact that this identifying quote-unquote spam, which is unsolicited, unwelcome content, Right, which is actually a free speech issue. Um, the fact that this is an automated process is um, is pretty powerful, considering again how easy it is for people who are angry at you. Let's just say someone was. I'm not suggesting that this is what happened. I mean, I know that you do have a lot of things automated, like you do have a lot of um, things that your GitHub does that are automated itself. So perhaps it was. Perhaps after years of using GitHub, something something they changed their spam filters and and you got swept up on it. But to me, what's much more likely is that some jerk, if not for you, then for other people, some jerk decides to flag your content and does it enough time or have enough of their um, uh, friends do it um, that that your stuff gets marked in some way as being inappropriate and it gets shut down without, again, without the sort of human eyes looking at it until later. And we can, you know, I, I mean, I'm sure that the argument is, well, that's how business works. We don't have time. We don't have the staff to, you know, to go through all of these things. We, we have to automate, right? This is the, this is the logic of tech. We have to automate it because we just couldn't possibly give, you know, hire enough people to do this manually. Um, but then, you know, what are the trade-offs when you are automating this sort of core functionality and you're expecting people to build businesses on your platform? What are the, what happens when you automate this, um, this, and then there's no transparency and very little recourse for people who get, who get caught up in, in this, in the system. And I mean, maybe, like I said, my situation was influenced because I, know people at GitHub that and they follow me on Twitter maybe they and your saw other it. I mean maybe. your you know your GitHub profile you you know you make commits regularly you've been a GitHub member for what probably five or six years now um, I mean there are other things again if we're talking about these automated algorithmic signals there are things that signal you as a human um, there are other things that um, that their system might might say, oh yeah, Ken, you know, Ken's all right because X, Y, or Z signal. They don't know you, um, so they're still sort of taking this. Uh, there's still still a decision tree. It can be complicated or simple. There's still some sort of decision tree that happens, and yeah, I mean, I just think you know we should just be thinking about what are the implications when more and more of these decision trees get handed off to systems that are being written by and written for certain people and with a c certain kind of identification of risk in place, but really overlooking other kinds of risk. Well, and, and we've seen this play out. I mean, to switch gears to the other topic we want to talk about today is is we're seeing these you know algorithms being given more control, these spam algorithms, these... These, uh, you know, what's trending, what's popular, what's real, what's not. These types of algorithm, algorithmic decisions are, are being handed over um, to machines to do more and more. And, 
and so that the humans, I guess, can 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 do other things or or not be involved. I don't know exactly what what the decision making looks like, but at Facebook, you know, we've seen this play out. We've talked about in previous shows about you know the news wall. What shows up in your news timeline? What shows up? What gets weighted as fake? What enters your bubble? And but this latest episode is is around advertising, and what um, you know how how we get influenced and how we get targeted by the advertising in our world. Yeah. So the I mean, as I said, we haven't done a show in a while, so we haven't actually talked about the ProPublica um, story that came out uh, the middle of the month that um, when ProPublica. Um, uh, reported that uh, that Facebook's advertising platform enabled people to enabled advertisers or people who choose to use you know Facebook's advertising or sponsored content post promotion um, interface to be able to really micro target certain audiences. And again, this is the this is absolutely a hundred percent the promise that these advertising technologies make. Facebook. Twitter, Google, etc. They promise that they'll be able to micro-target ads to specific demographics in ways that television or newspaper can't really do. But what ProPublica discovered is that among the sort of the groups that that you were able to target with ads were things like Jew haters, people who talked about burning Jews. And so they were able to um, recreate and and demonstrate that you could you could actually purchase advertising in order to target a small section of people with with I think what people I mean I think what we can what we've sort of later turned out to be is a sort of dark advertising right so you could actually micro target an ad just to like a thousand people even. Um, that had specifically, and in this in this particular instance, violently anti-Semitic, um, violently anti uh, people who have who express violent um, anti-Semitic political beliefs. But you can you can advertise, or advertising is sort of such a weird way to frame it. You can you can push content to them, right? Because it's not exactly that you're going to be advertising laundry detergent to the small group of violent anti-Semites. But you're actually going to be pushing specific content to them. Well, and for every every dimension that they're allowing to target, the, the tools allow the opposite dimension too as well. So it's like, you know, you can target young young black professionals in a certain demographic and sell them a product. Right, this is the then promise. The flip side this is, is you the... can target people who 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 hate black people and who are 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 you know so so there's both sides of this and there's the targeting tools and so two sides of the the Facebook kind of drama right now is is you know these targeting tools these algorithmic decisions you know the tools are just built for this you know you just put in your words and it'll help you figure it out. And then once you start targeting and, and, and buying ads of these against these, it'll suggest other enhancements to that for you. It'll start helping you in your work. I mean, this is what the tools are for. And if you don't have humans auditing who's purchasing and buying ads, you get people buying and targeting these 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 demographics in these these areas. But you have people like Russia. And you know you have people who who want to basically 
poke and stir at these groups well, and get I, them worked so up. So I would ways. say, I mean, even before, like, I mean, I think we should talk. I mean, I think that the Russian piece of it is, um, is is important. But I think that even before we'd sort of say that this is about Russia, I mean, you don't even you don't have to be a foreign ad, a foreign government or f- outside influence to be able to use this kind of thing and in a really divisive, detrimental, and I would say. Um, particularly if we're talking about election-related stuff, really anti-democratic way, right? So, like, you know, Twitter was able to... Twitter, um, according, I think, the Daily Beast wrote this, Twitter was able to, you know, suggest that... Um, if Suggest users who would be likely to click on content that talked about Nazis, right? So this is, you know, this is... Um, or people who used, uh, you know, who used the N-word, for example. So it's Facebook, it's Twitter, and it's Google that have, again, these advertising platforms that are automated. This isn't like, this isn't the way in which, um, you know, and advertising, we've talked about this before, advertising has its own really kind of sordid history of being absolutely about psychological manipulation. But this is, um, and and pur- purposefully, psycho- you know, purposefully so. But this is now handing this over to again this automated this automated feature, and there isn't somebody at the at the newspaper or at the other media. I mean, this is kind of the way in which you know it's important to think about these um, places as media entities. There isn't somebody to say, "A, no way, we're not running that ad. That's offensive," and there's really not a trail. Um, that, that, that there is because of the ways in which we have, um, regulations that govern other media companies, right? And so I think that, um, I think that, and that's the piece, you know, that's the piece that really quickly gets, has been swept up in the last couple of weeks with Facebook and advertising that was, um, around the election that was um, uh, ostensibly at least purchased by um, uh, Russian entities. And at first the rooms were like, oh, it's just a couple, like maybe not that big. But um, Facebook has turned over, I think, some 3,000 ads, and we've talked a little bit about this, has turned over um, ads to both um, uh, Robert Mueller, the special prosecutor, um, and also to Congress, and and now Mark Zuckerberg has sort of said, whatever we're gonna we're gonna do better because I care about democracy. Yeah, that's a that's a whole other conversation there, and and also Twitter Twitter is on on the same in the same situation. They're uh, both I would say have been you know asked to turn over, but they're also taking some some steps. To, to, to do you know take some initiative and be proactive about what they turn over and how they speak about this, but mostly just because I think they're trying to to mitigate the regulations that are uh, coming down you know the pipes as far as how this you know they've been trying to avoid being labeled as media companies to to get out from under you know the existing laws for quite some time so this is really you know the hammer's coming down on this and they're going to have to start answering to this and it's not like the um, 
they have the tools to understand, you know, to, to understand and start fixing this. They just haven't had the will to because it really feeds their bottom line and their, their business These model. are advertising and companies, really. Google, I mean, despite all of the lip service that, that Google pays towards, um, you know, whatever, organizing the world's information and making it useful, um, the, at the end of the day, Google is an advertising company. Google is about collecting data and being able to run ads against your retrieval, your interest, your and your retrieval and information. And and Facebook um, is not in, uh, is interested in sort of organizing this sort of social piece of that and selling advertising against it. Well, whatever Google's mission is, whatever Twitter's, Facebook, Instagram, it all whatever that mission is that they claim that they do. It actually is dot, 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 so we can sell ads against that. That's the whole purpose and existence that they have is so that they can target and sell ads against you. And they're, so they're in the business of, of making money off of this, and they're going to be willfully blind to this because they believe in their mission. They believe what they've you know, been telling everybody, that they're doing this for, for altruistic you know, reasons and and they're 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 really trying to you know index the world's information. They're really trying to connect the world. And the advertising is just oh this side thing to make sure that the bills get paid. But the the blinders that that advertising puts on not just the humans but also the algorithms because the algorithms are there to identify which words um, are being used. So they can see that it's 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 using the word Jew hater. The problem is. Is the, is the algorithms trained to go, hey, you said Jew hater. Do you also mean Jew burning and Jew this and Jew that? Because you forgot these other opportunities to target people. The problem is, is there's just there's no flag to go, uh, that's wrong because there's no human there to be able to do this. And we've seen this with the video content um, filtering and the news filtering and the other things that we've seen regarding fake news and stuff. This isn't just advertising. This is you know, across links being shared, news being shared, videos being shared, images being shared, targeting of the people. And, and what's really scary is all of this is automated through advertising. So, I mean, API, excuse me. So, so you can get at all of this through the Facebook Graph API and the Facebook Advertising API. And you can just start exploring. And the more you learn and the more you figure out how to play with this, the more you can automate and the more sensibly and, and specifically you can spend your money and, and hit and target just, you know, just say like the, the thousand people in a specific state that you need to influence in an election or, you know, you can get pretty, pretty precise in what you're doing just with a little, little bit of playing around and then you can really automate how you how you canvas how you spread how you target influence and we saw with the fake news that this is how many of the fake news campaigns would seed what they're doing is they would publish you know a a, a story that had a certain psych you know psychographic profile attached to it and then they would buy a little bit of ad to kind of boost that up get that going and then they would get feedback from the ad system about you know what other ads they could you know, buyer, what other target demographics they could hit, or, you know, people who 
who who who are really you know passionate and and interested in Jew burning, are also interested in this over here. And so you could write content about that, and then put that on the conveyor belt and and distribute that. And then you can start harvesting the profile accounts through the API of the people who like those things and really you know bought your ad, you know viewed your ads. And then you can go after their friends because you know what? These people tend to like each other and hang out together, birds of a feather type thing. And so really, this is just API-enabled um, you know, uh, disruption at, at, at a level we've never seen. And, and you know, the, the, us techies just are so blind to this because we believe, A, in the technology, and B, in the power of, of making money and making our, uh, the investors happy that, oh, it takes a lot of pushback before we're going to change our tune. I think that, you know, one of the things um, that I find that's really interesting to, for me about this is is that this all dovetails, I mean, this is this is personalization, right? This, I mean, that what we're talking about is, is absolutely personalization. And of course, personalization is such a buzzword in education. And, you know, again, not coincidentally, um, some of the same people, some of the same companies, some of the same investors are pushing this kind of algorithmic content delivery to um, into schools. And so, I mean, I've talked about this before, you know, when, when I hear someone like Mark Zuckerberg and his investment um, firm, the Chan Zuckerberg Initiative, talk about personalized learning, um, I don't think about John Dewey, right? I'm thinking about the ways in which um, certain populations, certain individuals even, are micro-targeted for advertising in the Facebook, in the Facebook data regime. And what's, I think, for me, I mean, I find the whole thing sort of hugely um, frightening for, for a number of reasons, but what we don't know often is, like, I might, I mean, I, actually, I do, you and I see very different things on Facebook. It's not simply because our friends lists are different, um, because we interact on different, with different people and different content. But um, I actually use an ad blocker, so I don't see ads on Facebook. But um, but there would be ways in which, you know, to sort of to push content into one or other of our Facebook feeds that that there would be very, very difficult to identify and track. And I think when we're thinking about a process like education, you know, what, and again, particularly under this idea that this, we're going to automate this because we can't be bothered to hire people because we think that the goal is efficiency, not humans, because we think that the goal is money, uh, not uh, human, again, not humanity. Um, you know, what, what are the implications of not being able to actually keep any sort of have any sort of transparency about the messages, the content um, that students are getting when they're being pushed in pushed down certain quote unquote learning paths because we've seen this play out. We've seen you know we've seen the sort of learning paths that certain Americans um, and I would say in other countries as well in the Philippines. I mean the Germans had their election today and they're now Nazis in the in the German government again for the first time since World War II. So what what is being what what content are people learning about and learning from 
thanks to personalization. And I don't think that we've, we've really seen either the tech, tech companies. I think that there's, you know, Mark, I think Zuck is sort of having a little moment of realizing that, you know, that he's created Frankenstein's monster here. Um, the video that he created this week was very weird. The, the brown colors were really odd. So, uh, anyway, but I'm not sure that the investors, I haven't seen any tech investors really talk about their culpability. And I'm not sure I've seen the industry as a whole come to terms with this. And nor have I really seen the rest of society either. Regulatory, um, government officials, um, educators, journalists even, really um, figure out or, or um, understand what what's at stake. I mean, I think that there are, a few, there are a few scholars, there are a few journalists, there are a few perhaps even politicians who kind of get what's going on here. Um, but I think that this is hugely, hugely frightening when we think about the future of knowledge and psychological manipulation, which is, again, the, at the core of advertising, and that we can so conveniently now say that it's automated, shrug our shoulders and pretend like we have no ethical, no moral responsibility to really, um, to really keep that in check. Yeah, I mean, I don't think we... I mean, this stuff is, is complex and complicated, not because it is, but because it's, it's meant to be to obfuscate a lot of what's going on. And we just don't have enough people tuning in and, and, and recognizing what's going on. And, and as, as a few people are, and we're starting to have some conversations about this, it just seems like everybody else in the machine is just doubling down and building more tech and more personalization. So. Well, we're, I mean, we're at... You know, we're at, what, 25 years of-ish, 20, 25 years-ish of, of the web. And, you know, of, of but we're also at around 20 years of the ideology that personalization is the end-all, be-all of, of, again, this sort of individualized, libertarian, um, automatized free man and these things you can't like if you've we've if we've spent we being sort of western society um have spent the last even longer than that lot lauding these values you can't just undo you can't undo this drive towards personalization simply because um it, it just doesn't i mean we just we can't we can't undo it that quickly. And I feel like we're actually in for far more struggle and I think darkness actually before we can get to a point where we can get through this to the other side because I feel like we really have only just started to um, think about the ways in which this is damaging to our very the very fabric of society. Um, and there are a lot of people who are really actually quite into it being damaging to the very fabric of our society. Um, and, yeah. and so, uh, you know, undoing personalization, mm, boy, that's, I see a lot of people who know pretty well what happened 
in the election who who understand um, the ways in which fake news and form manipulation and partisanship um, were 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 detrimental and are still pretty stoked when it comes to things that they think the world's been personalized for them. So. Yeah, scary stuff. Well, let's keep at it. Yep, till next week. Till next week.